Oscar Munoz is the executive chairman of United Airlines, having previously served as CEO from 2015 to 2019. Today, he will discuss how United, in the airline industry, have navigated the economic and health challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic and what to expect from the industry moving forward. Let's listen in. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Um, It really is an an honor uh, to welcome my friend Oscar Munoz. He's the executive chairman of United Airlines. Um, He became that effectively at the beginning of this year, having served as CEO for about five years um, as an outstanding CEO in a very challenging situation. And the way, well, I got to know Oscar was when he was a chief operating officer of CSX Transportation, which is based in Jacksonville. He's been uh, recognized as one of the 100 most influential uh, Hispanics. Oscar, I'm going to create a, I've heard him speak before, but I never realized that you are a former communicator of the year. So and during the next few minutes, we look forward to hearing from you how United uh, and the airline industry have navigated what actually has been, I'm sure, an existential uh, challenge from an economic and from a health standpoint. And where and how uh, the airline industry and United goes from here, and you might also uh, touch on uh, you know, how the business community and how the country can best address uh, you know, a few thoughts on the racial and economic inequality that we're dealing with today. With that, I turn it over to an outstanding business leader and an outstanding individual. Uh, thank you, Hap. Well, those are nice commentary. And uh, thank you, Paul. I want to see everybody as much as I can. Uh, and I'm sure there's a couple of folks that I've had a chance to meet out there at some point in time. And I suspect many of you have flown on our aircraft over the last few years, and I hope your experience uh, was, generally, uh, was generally good. Uh, this is an industry, airlines, where there everyone that flies uh, is instantly an expert, and so we get lots of feedback on everything from soup to nuts. Um, it's also an industry where no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, if you do something, there's a large portion of the folks that don't like it and vice versa. We fly approximately 180 million people a year, or did fly, to over 60 countries. Uh, and so large scale and global, um, we are all of those things. And, and certainly I, my, my thought today would be, uh, given that I have this background in the airline, give you a little bit of sense of what's going on, what's happened, and then open it up to questions. Um, I find that we never have enough time for what is the myriad endless set of questions with regards to anything and everything about our flights, and, and including your own personal travel that's, that's upcoming and I'll do my best to answer all of those things. It is a complicated industry. Uh, if you think of the logic and, uh, and algorithms involved in getting roughly 1,500 aircraft in the air, 24 by seven, getting all the right crews and all the right food and all the right people in the right seats, uh, endlessly, there's never a stopping point. I used to run a railroad. We at least stopped at night to a degree. Uh, but uh, in this business, it's constantly going and it's high stakes. It's incredibly competitive. Uh, historically very low margins, and uh, what, what has transpired over the course of probably the last five years for the industry writ large, and certainly at United, um, is we've done a really good job of building an actual business, and a business that has a little bit of margin, that focuses on you, the customers, uh, and up to uh, you know, approximately March of, uh, February, March of this year, we were on a roll. We had announced uh, my transition to exec chair 
uh, that was effective just a couple of weeks ago in May, uh, in December. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what good companies are supposed to do is create a transition plan that's nice. And we had a trajectory, we had our stock had doubled. Um, and more importantly, more importantly, the 100,000 people that work at United Family were feeling finally good about who they are and about themselves and where they were headed. And so it was a perfect time for the transition. And then, um, then all of this happens. And as I think of all of this, it's like we're not living through just one, but really three once-in-a-lifetime events that are taking place concurrently. Uh, the, the epidemic and all the cause, you know, the people affected, the, the deaths, the economic impact on the, at one point in time, over 30 million people uh, unemployed down to, I think, the latest numbers is over 20. And then, of course, just recently, the last, uh, last few weeks, this historic protest calling for civil rights and social justice um, and the African-American community. And while each event in my mind is distinct, um, I think we've all realized that they brought into focus some basic uh, hard realities about the disparity, the economic and racial, that is at the heart of our society and has been there for a long period of time. Uh, I speak as, as someone who's, who's done a lot in, in, in business and in politics and a host of different things, uh, but I can tell you stories about being Mexican-American in America. Um, it's not an easy thing and it shouldn't be as hard and I can imagine and therefore empathize a little bit more. Uh, but these impacts, these events have, if you think about it, they have fallen disproportionately on communities of color as we see for all the reasons that we, uh, that we have. So um, I wanna walk through a few things, business and on the racial issues, which I think we're all passionate about. Um, we do have uh, a uniquely united sort of a, a view on this since we are global, we fly to all these countries. We, we saw some of the early aspects of, of, this, uh, of this virus firsthand and took, uh, took the appropriate sort of actions very early on. Um, you know, we, we certainly were the first to feel it as an industry and probably the last to feel any benefit from it. Um, you know, our first realization was, if you remember back, uh, we were hearing about it. It was in the it was in the ecosphere, but it wasn't it wasn't in America yet. It was in these far off places that we as Americans tend to not really associate ourselves with. Right? I mean, where Wuhan? Where is that sort of thing? Uh, but that weekend when you saw the uh, the outbreak in South Korea, and then you saw the outbreak importantly in Italy, it really began to set home for some of us. What we saw because of the business we run, Italy in particular. Uh, typically at that time of year, we have full flights. Uh, daily, there are people booking more flights uh, for future, future times. As soon as the outbreak in North Florida, Lombard and Lombardy region was uh, sort of came in the news, within hours, we saw our load factors, people actually flying, drop precipitously. We saw bookings drop almost to zero. And that was just in that part of, of, of the world. Um, we quickly saw that and extrapolated to the point that this thing, clearly the virus travels, travels fast, and it's only a matter of time before it gets to the U.S. Uh, it just, it was our early assumption with regards to that. And, and it's, uh, so if you fast forward a couple of weeks later, we had already cut our capital spending, got into the system, raised a billion and a half of debt uh, quickly before you know, the news really got out on this. And in fact, uh, in a private session with the president of the United States, uh, that's literally what I left him with. It's like, you have, you have to understand, the demand drops to zero as soon as we have an outbreak. And so we did, a, I think, a phenomenal job of getting that information out, convincing, uh, honestly, a lot of my own industry leaders 
about the impact of this, and importantly, getting us to sort of, as an industry, come together and begin to form a coalition to go to the government for the support that we eventually have. Um, there's a term that people use that, um, that we get defensive about, you know, the bailout of the, of the U.S. airline system. This wasn't a bailout. There was nothing wrong with our firm. There was nothing wrong with our industry. In fact, we were sort of on a really good trajectory uh, and convincing uh, government, which is a book and a chapter and a whole hour-long conference of, of itself, um, uh, about how we get to that point. Uh, but I think our transparency and, importantly, our frankness and directness, which continues to be the point today, every time I speak uh, publicly now, our stock drops because we just have the same basic concept. We see the facts. Um, I, I always say, uh, uh, I, I, I pass this on to my, to my successor. Every morning, you need to wake up and get facts and data that support your view and opinion because we, we want to be more helpful. We want to be more optimistic about uh, the future. But the fact of the matter is with this virus and the impact that we've seen and constantly, every time any little bit of news rises with regards to this virus, we see our business drop precipitously. New York, New York is just coming out of this. It's everything's feeling great. And all of a sudden you know, the governor announces the ban on people from the hot states and you see the drop off in bookings precipitously. It is still a very sensitive subject. Uh, we're tracking all the different hot areas and you know, no one's going to Arizona and Texas and, and, and to a degree Florida um, and where, where I live and, and half used to live is, is a place that we get. So frankness and transparency has been really important. It really helped us get, uh, you know, we're the only industry that got money from the government as a grant It had its hooks, but nevertheless, it was helpful to do that. And so, uh, so in the interim, I do want to give a little bit of shout out because as dire and as impactful as this was, we also took as a company the opportunity, like many other corporations, to help out. We've been repatriating our citizens from all over the world. I can't tell you how many tens of thousands we've had to bring back because of the various sort of uh, barriers to entry and exit. Uh, we have transported lots of cargo. Uh, the famous you know, acronym of PPE. I can't tell you how many how many variants of all that we've we've transported over the course of the last four months. And then, of course, flying medical personnel from all over the country to the hot places. And and and, and why that's heroic is that our, my employees, my United family are deemed essential. And so they are indeed at the front line like our, our, our medical workers. And so it's been, it's been terrific to watch them go through this, knowing, knowing that you know, from a standpoint of, of um, the recovery on this, that many of them may not have a job after it's done. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, I also think we've led the way on the health standards. And I think a lot of questions that everyone has, and we read different things in different, uh, in different uh, periodicals and on the internet. Um, an aircraft is indeed probably one of the safest places you can fly at this point. I'll tell you why in a little bit. Um, getting to the airplane, walking through the airport, wherever your location might be is something we don't control. But you know, the, the things that you'll see that are very visible and give, should give you a lot of confidence is, is you read about and heard about the, uh, the HEPA grade air filters in our aircraft. They remove 99.97% of particles in the air every four to five minutes. That combined with any kind of mask or even an N95 mask is the risk of transmission inside an aircraft uh, versus the droplets is fairly, fairly uh, nil. Um, we are in the process of finishing a study that will be published by third parties 
Um, we know since this has started, the crisis has started, uh, we've not had a single infection from somebody having it on the aircraft. We've had plenty of people on the aircraft that have had the virus, that have been diagnosed, but none of our employees, none of the people that, that help and service you on the aircraft or fly you, have, we've, had, we've not had one instance. So the air filters and the mask and the combination of that have been very helpful. Uh, we're obviously cleaning, uh, we're making people wear masks. Uh, unfortunately, as all of us know, and no labels is a perfect example, of, uh, I'm sure you'd support this, we, it's become politicized. Uh, when the President of the United States says, if you wear it, you know, you don't like me, um, that is just confounding to someone who wants to keep people safe and everything. So uh, so we, we put, a, in fact, we got the industry together and made sure we got this all done uh, at the same time. If you don't want to wear your mask, we ban you from flying on our airline. But importantly, we got the rest of the airline system to do that. So if you get the proverbial red card in soccer, you cannot fly any U.S. airline. That's how strongly we feel about the aspect of wearing masks. I know they're not comfortable. I know people wear them over their eyes and all sorts of things, but it is important that, that we wear those. And so, but at the end of the day, we are, we are doing so many things to make sure everything is clean. Everything is, you know, electrostatic. We've got drones with ultraviolet lights that do all those things. Uh, importantly, before you fly us, we ask you to, you know, a health self-assessment that walks you through a list of questions. Um, if you know, you're on your honor, you can lie anytime you want, but it's important to have those little different things. And then, and then lately, over the last month and a half, sort of to confirm um, and give confidence to our actions, we've teamed up with Clorox as a brand name that I think we'll all agree speaks of cleanliness. And we teamed up with the Cleveland Clinic, who is directing everything that we've done. Again, the purpose and simple objective is to give you a little trust and a little confidence that when you're on the aircraft, you're indeed, you're indeed uh, safe. Now, I'm not telling you to go fly. I'm telling you to make your own decisions. I'm just telling you that is, is, is in regards to cleanliness and health and aspect, uh, an aircraft could be one of the safest places, as hospital rooms are tend to be right now and other places like that. Um, uh, the business is down significantly. Uh, we are, you, you'll read that there's a little bit of an uptick in the business. Um, there is. Uh, we've gone from traveling uh, maybe eight to 10,000 people per day. Uh, which may sound like a lot, it's gone up to 60, so almost 70,000 people per day. So a massive increase. At this time of year in our business, we are normally traveling um, 600,000 people. So we are nowhere near the level of volume that we have on, a, on an everyday basis. And our revenues are therefore down to that degree. We're about a $45 billion business uh, normally. Uh, you know, We'll be lucky to hit five over the course of the rest of the year. So the financial impact is significant and therefore the need to cost and size adjust our business for the future. Because um, we have a fundamental view, again, back to frankness, that until a vaccine is developed, implemented, and the world is inoculated, we don't think demand comes back until then, not to the levels that we have. Uh, you'll hear that we just announced a, a flight to China. Um, it's, it's two flights. Um, they'll be very empty uh, by and large. And we used to fly 12 and a half times per day to China. That level of volume won't come back for a long period of time. So we, my business, my United Family is operating under all of these, all of these kind of constraints. Um, but um, we're also, and a lot of your people are business folks, um, you know, how can you be, I don't know, for lack of a better term, disruptive in the same process? Um, so we're going to go frictionless. 
Uh, we've been wanting to not have paper boarding passes for quite some time. A, a big majority of our flyers don't use them anyway. They use the app and just can, but there's a large a bit of population. I'm sure some of us uh, here on this call, that still like their paper. My wife is one of those folks. She goes, I don't care. I just want my paper. Um, this is going to be an opportunity where no one's going to want the paper anymore. Uh, and so, you know, whoever you fly, all the airlines have apps. I strongly recommend that you get those. The United app, by the way, is voted one of the, what voted the best in the airline industry. Um, but, you know, again, touchless for everything, your baggage claims. We're doing a lot of things that you don't have to really touch or actually interact with anyone. Um, importantly, with our app, um, you, you probably someone will ask me a question about middle seats. Uh, our app, we can, if you fly with us uh, 24 hours in advance, if we see that your flight is over 70% full, which indicates that middle seats would have to be filled in order to get that, we let you know and allow you to change your flight to a different time, a different place where the flight isn't as, as full. And so, um, interestingly enough, the take rate on that, when we've gotten the few flights that we have over that 70%, um, less than, I think it's 1.8% of people have actually taken us up on that. The thing about flying is, if, you, if you're going where I want to go or need to go, if it's the right price and at the right time, people fly all the time. And while a lot of you on the call will say, I'm not flying forever and ever, there's a huge population of folks largely millennial and younger who are taking advantage of the low prices and the fact that they seem to not uh, not get the disease or as seriously as others, um, they're taking an opportunity to really uh, to really fly a lot. But again, it's a very few amount of folks. And so we're taking all, all this time to, to put some things together that uh, will be. Um, if I think of, of the, the magnitude of this, just to give you a sense, the worst ever scenario in the airline industry was 9-11. Uh, right after 9-11, no one was flying. Uh, the impact of that is our business, our revenue went down about 40% as an industry for approximately two and a half, three months. Ours has gone down 95, 98% and only climbing up now. And it's been more than three months. And importantly, we don't know when this is going to end. My, my conjecture is that you know, a vaccine is going to have to come in place uh, at some point in time. So we are, uh, we are slowly, we're hanging in there. Um, there's going to be, unfortunately, we've had to announce a lot of departures from the business, people that have worked with us for 20, 30 years, and it's heart-wrenching uh, to be able to have to make those decisions. But I'll tell you, in your various lines of business and work, uh, I have to tell you, an airline employee and what they have to go through from a training perspective, what they have to go through every day with the variables that are involved in our business, we have the best planning and logistics teams in the world but we don't control mother nature. We don't control the medical community. We don't, we don't control so many different things that can affect how air traffic uh, will flow. Uh, but if you ever have a chance to support someone that's a, unfortunately uh, a recent United or uh, airline employee, that you'll find that the, their, their skill set as a human, as a leader, as, a, as someone that can manage a lot of variables is pretty high. So just my plug for the folks that are out there. Um, and then, um, it, as I uh, as I sort of wind down on the business, I think um, we are we are going to recover. It's going to recover slowly. Uh, domestic business will come first. Uh, international is almost non-existent. Most of our international flights are just cargo flights. Uh, for those of you with questions that hey, I was thinking of going to Europe for the summer or late summer, all those trips. 
um, it's going to be difficult to get. Um, we have the barriers, right? We have the restrictions on travel that the EU has against those of us in America and vice versa. Um, all of it has to be lifted. So while there are places we want to fly and there's a little bit of demand to go there, uh, unfortunately, politics will get involved to some degree and that'll continue to be a point that we manage through. So um, as we go through Q&A, um, any questions, uh, you know, there's been incidents on my airline under my watch, there's the doctor being dragged off. Um, we've had just a mirror, the government shut down. We had Pakistani airspace. I mean, there's just a never ending uh, sort of dialogue of, of disasters uh, that, that always befall our industry. Happy to answer any questions about those things. Uh, but before I do that, um, let me uh, spend a few minutes on the racial tensions. And we've tried to be, all of us, I think, um, understanding and opening up dialogue, which I think is one of the most important things that any one of us individually can do. If you don't understand why, um, ask someone and ask someone in a way that they will talk to you calmly and the way that you'll listen. Um, you know, the, the anger, the hurt, the despair you see on, on the faces of people on TV and others um, and the response, um, you know, it's real. Uh, and, it's, and it comes from a long history that some of us know and some of us don't always uh, can appreciate. Um, but we've also seen great acts of bravery and heroism and people helping each other out in so many ways. Um, and then importantly, what we've done at Business Roundtable, Business Council, and all the corporate leaders, I think corporate leaders are really beginning to take a lot of action and speaking up in the way. And so it's been encouraging to see all that. Um, but the mantra of this moment needs to be that this time, this time, it's different. Um, and we have to make it so in a way that because the response from us as corporate leaders and all of us, in here, it has to go beyond the traditional things that we've done. Uh, all of us that sit on boards, we've been through this for 20 years. We're going to put metrics in for diversity. We're going to put all these numbers, but it's not, it's not, always, it's not always managed itself in any way. Uh, so, um, you know, as I think through this, um, and I talk with a lot of our folks, um, African-Americans just, they, they don't just feel locked into this, this, this criminal system. They also feel locked out of the economic cycle that a lot of us have gotten a chance to participate in. Um, and so in, in addition to the police reform that is being, uh, we just had, we had all the folks uh, from our government talking about this yesterday uh, to the BRT, uh, police reform is, is going to get political a little bit, but there'll be some changes. But there are things that we can do and are being done that are more important. Um, certainly banking, uh, folks, community capital allocation, all of that is, is you're seeing much more of that. Uh, for me, um, having grown up uh, very poor in a community where this happened to, but the loss of, of traditional pillars that, that kind of hold up and fortify communities, whether it's schools, uh, gyms, YMCAs, uh, your church, your park. Um, I grew up in Southern California in East LA in the inner city. And I remember as a young kid seeing some of the things available to us that slowly disappear through whatever means. Uh, there's an area there where all of us can help and fix. In your communities, there are places that are no longer existing or are just hanging on. I think you can go into those communities and support financially or any way you can, I think it'd be helpful. Because I think the corporate uh, allocation of resources is gonna really happen. Um, but the thing I would leave you with on race, and it's one of the most important things, um, 
when people that aren't in the underrepresented class, right, people that are not of color, um, speak up about this, it, 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 it exponential volume versus someone like me talking about it or someone who's African-American. Um, I've been around for too long. I, I just see it. I see people roll their eyes. I, I've seen it through the women's movement, through the, you know, through the gay and lesbian movement. Um, when, when we who aren't affected by this truly understand it and speak up, and I think the term is ally, um, you know, it, 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 I just can't tell you how important that is for the community to have people really sort of, in essence, it, the, use the kids, you know, woke to wake up to this thing. And so, uh, you know, this is a time for action at every level, um, not just words of support, because, um, you know, I always say in my company, proof, not promise. And so if it, indeed you feel strongly about this, there are ways to get involved that don't involve a ton of money or speeches. Or there's a lot of ways that you can do fundamentally in your own community that can help. Um, I'll leave you with the fact that, you know, the righteous anger that you see in this movement stems, as I talk to people, from a really deep suspicion that once again, nothing's going to change. And that's where that comes from. And that's what's the most frustrating to folks. And so if indeed this time it's different, I think it's up to all of us to make it so. So um, Hap and Nancy and Liz, I I'll stop there. And again, um, I try to carry a wide vast of, of, of subjects, but uh, I'd love to hear your questions. Well, with that, and one of the things I, I failed to mention in my intro was uh, questions to a proud USC Trojan, and we'll start with Maxine Clark. Uh, thanks, and thank you for your comments today. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and fly United often to the West Coast and also uh, to Newark Airport as often, almost all the time prior to the COVID. And unfortunately in St. Louis, we have those small airplanes uh, that are, I know they're not really United, but they're operated by somebody else. And how are those gonna possibly be, they're not even the modern big airplanes like you can get on to go to LA or, or somewhere else. How are those gonna operate? And are they gonna be cut back because of just expenses? Yeah, I, I think uh, you're, you're talking about those small 70 or 50 seaters. Um, yeah. Uh, those are, are slowly phasing out um, for a lot of complicated reasons, long-term leases, um, long-term ratios in our labor contracts with the unions that are required to use those. And to a degree, the demand out of certain cities um, makes those uh, at least economically optimal. Um, they're, they're awful airplanes for the future. Um, uh, you see United really slowly move out of those getting to those larger 76 years, which actually have a first class section and all those. So that, most, that, of are, the, most of them have a first class section, but they're still small and you can reach across to the person that's next to you across the aisle. They're still small. Yeah, no, uh, that is indeed, uh, again, those, those, are, those planes are put in places where the demand is, is issued. You know, St. Louis is a, a, an example, I think historically, where you used to have a lot of aircraft, right? TWA was based out of there over time for a lot of different reasons. The level of demand, the level of business demand uh, has just uh, weakened to a point where uh, airplanes just don't go there and therefore you get the smaller. So the, the 76 eaters uh, will fly for a while. It's the small, small ones that will cease to exist uh, in, a, in a short time. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be a challenge in, in markets like St. Louis, which are big markets. I mean, I, I constantly commute to DC, San Francisco and, and New York and um, you know, I, I live with it, but it's not pleasant. You know, it's always a, it's a short flight relatively, but still not pleasant. But I do know how complicated it is for an airline. I don't even know how you get us all where we have to go and our bags and everything else. So I totally appreciate it. And I know this has been an incredibly complex time. 
I appreciate your comments, particularly about uh, race and race relations. But I have to say that, except on these small airplanes that I fly, that sometimes there's an African-American uh, uh, flight attendant. I don't think I've ever seen an African-American pilot or um, in the bigger, in the bigger uh, flights have I ever seen uh, African-American flight attendants in the, big, in the regular flights to Europe or anywhere else. And I just think that's a huge opportunity. I know those are always desirable, have been desirable jobs in the past for the benefit of travel and working you know, for a good company. And I think that's a real opportunity to open up those opportunities to young, uh, Afri to, for them to even know those jobs exist, you know, that there are possibilities for them. I, I think uh, you're right. We created a program called Aviate, uh, which was our, again, this concept of proof, not promise. We put a program in place that was uh, certainly going to help that. Um, you probably haven't seen them. The facts around our diversity in our company writ large, but certainly in our pilot ranks, we have the highest percentage of women pilots in the world. I have seen that. And we have the second highest uh, ratio of, of African-American male pilots in the world, second only to some South African um, airlines. And so we're, we're, we're proud of the places, but if I gave you the numbers for women, it's 8%. Um, and we lead the world in that regard. So the opportunity exists for this all the time. Uh, they are great jobs. We are starting at grassroots levels, right? Education is such an important thing as we all know on this call, but getting to folks in, in really high school um, because the aptitude intellectually has to be such because it's, it's, it's fairly complex, but you also need a little bit of the uh, eye-hand coordination. We used to get a lot of people from the military where we got a lot of our diversity, but the military is cut back with regards to that. So it's a never-ending task. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, hopefully you see uh, that now with our flight attendants, um, that's easily the most diverse population of any employment group anywhere in the world. We have, we are, completely over-indexed on, on that. So I feel very confident that you should see more of us, maybe not in the small aircraft, so those are different places, but we are very well represented in that community. David Rabin. Uh, hi, thank you so much. Um, just one quick question. Um, I've read more than a few accounts, unfortunately, of people flying and uh, seeing people basically smirk when the flight attendants ask them to wear their fast face mask. And I read an article the other day about a guy who flew from South Africa to DC and said, it, you know, we got in the airport in South Africa, they took his temperature, he filled out a form, he took his temperature three or four times on the flight. Uh, and when he landed in DC, no one collected the form from him, no one took his temperature. And he was just sort of stunned at the lackadaisical nature of enforcement. And from what I understand, and again, I'm not sure this hasn't changed, but the FAA has not yet made it a regulation um, that you have to wear a mask. And so the flight attendants are sort of hamstrung uh, in terms of enforcement. I did hear what you say about this sort of red card that you're issuing now. But in during a flight, what I've read is that flight attendants are kind of hamstrung and they're trying to avoid getting into a, um, any sort of uh, argument with a uh, passenger mid-flight that might lead to them having to do an emergency landing. So they're just sort of letting it go. And I, I'm curious if there's any logic as to why the other than following some crazy mandate from Trump, but why the FAA would not uh, mandate just like wearing a seatbelt or not smoking um, mask wearing. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned two areas, smoking and seatbelt that we have a continuous problem with always. Uh, Again, when you fly 180 million people all over the world, you're always going to have um, 
some, you know, some just not right person that feels that, that they don't want to do this. Uh, I think not in defense, but just in recognition of the complexity of trying to enforce anything. Um, what is your enforcement capability, right? Anytime you get, it's, you, can, you can land a flight and you won't be happy. If you're on that aircraft and, and we have to land it in an emergency because somebody doesn't want to put their mask on, I guarantee you that the, the high percentage of people on that aircraft are going to be pissed. Because, you know, it's just that enforcement for us from a mandate from FAA or any other place is almost impossible to work through because it has to happen before or after, which is why we developed this kind of red card concept. It's like, hey, right, you can get, you can get away with it once, but you're not going to get away with it more. With regards to crossing jurisdictions, you, you know, talk about somebody from South Africa coming all the way to D.C. and all that. Um, it's impossible to get those two governmental units coordinated or everybody in the now, an aircraft, an airport receives hundreds of flights any given hour, so it's tough to do that. I just had a friend fly from Florida into uh, New York, knowing that he was going to have to go in quarantine. He's all worried. He's got his paperwork. No one said a word. Not a person. He just walked off the plane and he's looking around for people trying to give something. Didn't happen. Um, you know, the, the question is, would you, would you rather have an FAA mandate uh, or would you rather work it the way you do? Um, I think generally we prefer to work it the way we do because this 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 thing that we're doing is helpful. We've only had to give four red cards out in the last since I checked in the last three weeks probably, and so um, uh, it's it's again it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, just uh, human beings just when they don't want to do something, uh, the the seatbelt question is a perfect one. People refuse to wear them, you know, completely refuse. Don't need to. It's gonna mess up my suit or my dress, and you know, for those kind of comments. So it, it's the people. Back to the issue of what our our uh, our employees have to put up with all the time. They have to. So we we teach them rather than enforcement and just you know pull out the heavy card and get a policeman to drag them off the plane because that's how that other thing happened to some degree. Uh, de-escalation. How do you take a person? How do you quiet them down? How do you say this? And then uh, we, we we are moving people around if someone doesn't want to. And so we're trying to manage as best as possible, but a, a mandate that has to be enforced through anything, it, it would be, um, I don't know that it would be that more, much more helpful. Bill Galston. Thank you. Uh, first, first of all, uh, Mr. Munoz, uh, your credentials as a communicator have not been overstated. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to, have, pleasure to have this dialogue with you. Uh, in, in the name of keeping the pleasant vibrations flowing, I will not share with you my impressions of what has happened to the customer experience uh, over the past five years as the business model has improved. Uh, but I do, I, I do have a question slash comment uh, on what you said about the safety of airline travel because of filtration systems. Uh, I can tell you psychologically that if I'm sitting next to a person who is not my wife on an airplane, particularly a small airplane, I don't care what the statistics say, I will not feel safe, which tees up my question. Uh, I wonder whether you had a reaction to the CDC's pretty blunt and tart, tart rebuke to one of your competitors 
uh, that recently announced that they would be flying full planes, that they would no longer carry out their middle seat vacant policy. Um, you know, Dr. Redfield, who I know well, and we've talked since, uh, and Dr. Fauci, who I also know well, and I've talked since, and Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who's been live with this, uh, there's probably a thousand other doctors that would tell you the opposite. Um, the, the fact of the matter, so let's just get the facts rather than what you see or read or hear in the press. Um, a, a regular aircraft um, is a 11 foot wide circum, you know, tube in essence. Um, it is impossible to quote, socially distance anyone sitting in the same aisle. It's only 11 foot across. You can't sit far enough apart. So the, while you're right, you may be uncomfortable with someone you don't know sitting next to you, but most of us are uncomfortable with sitting next to someone we don't know anyway. Uh, and that's back to your customer experience. And I'm sure you've got a long litany of those issues over the years as, we, uh, as our aircraft have been redesigned. And so uh, the, what you hear about middle seats being open, um, it's a bit more of a public relations campaign. It's not a medical one. And this is what we do with Cleveland Clinic, for instance, and that's why they help us. They're the ones that helped us guide to this way. It's like, there's nothing you can do to actually, if somebody is indeed sick, within a, a radius, you know, the, the row behind you, the row in front of you, um, it's always gonna be uh, a potential for infection. But again, we've not had a single infection of anyone in, in four months. Now, we gotta get that data out, we gotta get it by a, a third party that ratifies that. And so, uh, so my reaction to those commentaries is just like with anybody's, that's like, have you considered these facts? And the HEPA air filter uh, is a big part of it. Along with the mask, that combination should really limit anything. Um, you know, the fact that we're forcing people to wear masks is another, the fact that we're cleaning is all of this. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of people uncomfortable with that. And, and our answer to them is terrific. Don't fly. Don't do it. Because there's, if you're indeed that nervous about it, why are you doing it? Um, and so, uh, and the reason is some people have to. That's the other thing is people just aren't flying for leisure. I mean, it's, you hear the stories. I have, I have a sick parent that I haven't seen and you know, if I don't see them soon. And so we try to, which is why we developed the app that says, this flight's gonna be full, can you go another time? And again, very few people have taken us up on that. So um, again, this is an industry where everybody has an opinion, everybody shares it, everybody has a bully pulpit, both, you know, both ways. Um, and our job is to do the best we can, to inform you as much as we can, to tell you the facts, to be frank, transparent, um, you know, we're not flying that many aircraft. Another airline, this, the airline you mentioned, is doubling the size of their, their fleet that's flying. There is no demand for that kind of business. None. Zero. Um, and so, uh, so, you know, it's going to be a constant sort of uh, conversation. Um, and, got, and as I told Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield, when we had this debate, is that, you know, you guys are also the ones that declared loudly that masks weren't something for us to wear. And you reverse course on that. What have you learned from that? via facts, and can you explore the facts that we've just given you with regards to the efficacy of these HEPA air filters? And you don't have to say anything more, but you should say it from that fact base because they weren't aware of that for some reason. So um, you know, I sound defensive because we're having this conversation at all times. It does not behoove us to get any of you sick on an aircraft. None. It, it, the money, we are hemorrhaging money today. We're burning $40 million a day. Do the math in a quarter, that's billions of dollars. I just, I, God, we've just raised $10 billion of debt 
And the hangover from that for my company, you want to talk about customer experience going forward? We're not going to have any money to do some of the things that we've been trying to do. So it's a dire time. So I don't need anyone to be more angry or more upset or get sick or create an actual fact-based sort of infection rate in our aircraft. Um, We feel comfortable. I'm a heart transplant patient. There's no one more immune suppressed than myself. I wear my mask, I fly, I see people, we don't touch, we do all the behavioral things. And so, but that's my choice. And for others that want to have this debate long-term, it's like, don't fly. Don't fall for the PR stuff because I guarantee you, flying Southwest, uh, you know, the exposure is frankly the same to some degree. And what you'll see, and you can mark my words as I stand before you, it's only a matter of time before the airlines that are making a big PR issue have to revert back from that. Because the economics of our business do not work with flying aircraft only 65% full. They just don't. Impossible to do that. And so that you know, they'll have to revert back at the right time and they'll face the same pressure. Good answer to a tough, very tough question that a lot of people have. Uh, Don Upton, your turn. Thank you. And thank you for being with us today. I put a red circle on my calendar for this one. I'm calling from Tampa Bay at my home, and my headquarters is in Charlotte, North Carolina, soon to be home. Two cities that depend on a great future vision for its airports and its multimodal transportation. And I think everyone that's participating has that feeling about their region. So my question goes a bit into the future, and it depends on you wearing all these great hats because you are a rail guy. You are an airline man. You are a multimodal thinker, and I I think that puts you in a special position uh, to be an advisor for a group like this. And I think there will be significant infrastructure funding on the horizon at a federal level. It'll be robust. I don't know if it'll be strategic, but it'll be robust. And I was wondering if you could take us to the end of pandemic and into big infrastructure funding. What do you think we need to keep our eye on in terms of how we plan for the next 50 years, how we invest? how we vision for those dollars so it builds out the multimodal infrastructure of which you're such an important part. Can you take us a bit into the future? How could we change? Well, that's a heady question because it involves such a wide variety of of, of things. And and you mentioned some predicates that um, may or may not happen. Um, I think, and I agree wholeheartedly that infrastructure writ large investment in this nation has to be done, right? Our, our, our highway system, last time was, uh, was you know, in the 50s when it was built. Uh, we saw the bridge that collapsed a few years ago. Um, I used to run a rail business, and, and so you know, uh, the rails have to pave their own way for the, the rails they use. Uh, and so uh, and, and, you know, the, the shipping industry has had its issues. Um, but yet the world continues to consume, and it continues to be infinitely more global. The Panama Canal expansion is a good example of that. So the world at large understands this. Uh, I worry about your predicate that when this is over, there will be lots of money to invest in infrastructure. Um, I, don't, I don't know that that's going to be the case. You know, we're talking about a trillion dollar phase four COVID relief. I, I'm not, it's not going to be the last. I think very much like corporations like me that are going to wake up from this with a, a very heavy debt hangover and the interest you know, and carrying cost of all of that. I think our nation is going to be in the same place. And it's such a political environment because where do you invest first? If you say roads and bridges, great. Which roads and bridges and where, right? And ports, you know, so you've seen a lot of private uh, public partnerships, which would be part of it. You see a lot of infrastructure funds. So I think that'll continue. It's going to have to be, um, uh, so in the future, 
Um, for us, our international flights are cargo only, by and large. We'll, we'll carry, you know, 20, 30 human beings and just going back to their country. We've never carried that. Because of my background in freight coverage and because of the fact that I knew a lot of players in the big cargo space, our cargo business at United before the COVID went from, I don't know, half a billion dollars to close to $2 billion. Um, and I'll, of course, it's even higher now because that's all, you know, we're doing a lot more of that. So I, I think, you know, I don't know that I have a good answer to the, what the future looks like. Um, it is going to have to be, uh, to a degree, much more of a priority for governments. And what's going to be difficult is governments um, aren't trusting each other. You see this with the, with the travel bans. So we have, a, we have a long period of regaining the trust of our allies. And that's not a political statement, but kind of is. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and, and the only way you have really good partnerships is through trust. So it, it, your question is a great one. I don't think anything's going to change drastically in the interim. I think you're going to see a consolidation of, of companies all over the place. You're seeing it all. You're going you're gonna to see a ton less airlines, certainly, a ton less you know, sort of shipping companies. Um, and then you know, we'll have to start. You know, the reason for, for multimodal shipping is that people need goods to manufacture and to move ahead. And so the economy is going to have to come up. So I have a, a bit of a, a, you know, not a particularly positive outlook on that at this point, but, um, uh, but stay tuned. I, the infrastructure funding is going to be critical, and that's a huge political mess. Um, so we'll see. All right. Bob Zeidman, your turn. I didn't really have a question, thanks. I just made a statement. Everybody can read it on the chat. So, but okay. Just asking a question about race relations can get you fired. <laughs> well, that's basically it. Look, let me, let me just, I don't really want to cause a big controversy here. I don't know if this is the venue for it, but, you know, I think that assuming people know what, what I've been through based on my skin color is just absolutely wrong. I think also that, uh, you know, I've seen the kind of prejudice firsthand against uh, minorities and against myself for not being a minority. A group in Philadelphia, uh, where I was a minority, and um, I just think there's a lot of assumptions. But I will say that I know people who have been fired for just bringing up the question. So I think it's not so simple to just bring up the question in a nice way. Uh, even just bringing up the question can get you fired, and I know people that that's happened to. You know, I think everyone has experiences across with large. I mean, my, my suggestion is um, individually create and generate a dialogue with someone and, and you know, have that very un potentially uncomfortable question about, I don't understand why, right? Uh, I think uh, on a previous call, I mentioned uh, with Drew Brees and you know, the comments he made and the backlash he got, and he retracted a statement the day later because he didn't realize how his comment hurt so many people and the way it hurt them. That waking up to the issue, he retracted his comments. Like, I did not mean to hurt anyone. And I think what we find in this space, and, and just like your, your comments, you have a history, you have a particular experience, and somebody may not recognize that hurt and that pain because they've never seen it. Uh, and, and there's a certain sort of class of people that never really feel it like other uh, folks have for you know, hundreds of years. And so uh, it, it, is a, uh, it is a divide that we need to make different. And, and it's not just for African-Americans. It's not just for Latinos. It's across the world. We've made progress, but, you know, um, bias exists in America. And it lives well, and it lives, it lives high in high, high places. And, you know, slowly but surely, we're going to make something uh, hopefully change. Bye -bye. Thanks.
Doc Scribner. Uh, thank you, and Mr. Munoz, a, a three million mile United Flyer. Uh, um, question I've got, you mentioned the business roundtable. Um, and last August, the BRT announced uh, its new statement on stakeholder uh, theories of, of governance. What, can you give a little color about what did it take within the BRT to make that happen? And then what's gonna change? What, what will United do differently as a result of that approach, if anything? Yeah, so um, two things. Um, we, we, we've, we've done a lot of things at the BRT since I've been on there. We did the, the corporate purpose one and got a lot of backlash. You know, it, companies should only exist to make money for the share owners. We said, yes, but um, it's also important to lead social causes, to help, you know, all sorts of things. And there was a bit of backlash on that. Um, I think the purpose at the BRT is you get the top leaders of, of corporate America. Um, and there's different views, but we coalesce to put statements together that, um, I don't know, simplify a concept and set a direction that corporate America can get behind. Um, that's all we try to do. It works sometimes. We, we did a, a reopening one. We spent a lot of time. And I was not a supporter of that particular. And, and, and Josh Bolton, who runs it, talked to me. It's like, Josh, this is the wrong time to talk about reopening. This, unless we have a vaccine, we're going to have recurring waves of this. And I'm not a medical professional, but I just you can see where it's happening. But they went ahead and put this all together and published it. And we took it, you know, all the way to the president's office and all his leaders. Everybody reopened however they wanted to, uh, whether someone followed the instincts there or not. Um, but my point, our point in general, um, when we deba debate these things, it's like, um, but not doing anything or saying anything is probably worse. So let's get the collective views of arguably some of our best business minds in the world and get, you know, get sort of a, a mass around a particular subject and put it down on paper. And maybe somewhere, somehow, that begins to sort of direct uh, or, or provide direction for someone. And so that's the purpose and objective. Uh, and, you know, we'll get it out everywhere and people will, will, will again, will have their views on it. But not doing anything is, is important. It's not, it's not, it's not clear. Um, we're also, again, back to this proof not promise that permeates everything I do anyway for folks. Um, you're going to see and hear increasingly more and more uh, sort of declarations from business leaders at the highest levels about racial equality, about the, the things that, that we talk about. So, so that's that's the uh, that's the intent and the objective. Uh, it has varying degrees of success, but again, my personal commentary is that it's far better to have done something and put something together than nothing at all. Joe Myers. Oh, thank you. So, uh, and thanks for your willingness to share all your uh, great observations and your very insightful comments. Uh, I know if my business was down 90%, I'm not sure I'd be uh, public at a, appearing in a public forum like this and, and being so candid, but it's, it takes a lot of courage. Uh, listen, if you were to try and put yourself four or five years ahead uh, with your insight, you know, how do you think the travel industry, uh, again, looking at it four or five years out, has been changed forever? Clearly, we're going to move back uh, in the direction of where we came, but uh, to what extent and what are the permanent changes? Going forward. Going forward, yeah. yeah. Looking at <clears throat> what it'll look like in four or five years from now. Sure. Um, um, I, I think I, so history teaches us a lot, right? 
Um, you saw many of us on the call were around during 9-11 uh, and remember those good old days where you could just literally pull up to an airport and park your car and walk in and everybody greeted you with gloves and gave you everything you wanted for free and, and you walked right on an aircraft without anything in the, in the middle of that. Um, and how vastly those times have changed uh, post that. Uh, TSA is probably the most uh, sort of iconish uh, view of that. I think going forward, um, you know, until we have a vaccine, I, I think the invasion of privacy, as somebody uh, terms it, is going to be uh, is going to increase. Uh, we're going to want to know whether you're really sick or not. We're going to do thermal imaging. You're going to be answering a lot of questions. There's going to be a lot of folks um, that aren't allowed on planes if we indicate this. So I think you're going to see that for a little while. Um, from the future of the business, um, you know, there's there's a lot. I think a lot of people are saying that people have learned to work in this fashion where you gather lots of people over a, over a camera and, and, and it's very effective and efficient and I don't have to leave my living room or my office. Um, businesses don't run that way, in my opinion. You don't build cultures that withstand pressures like this for this way. I think as humans, the dynamic we need is others. Uh, it, it's simple, it's back to ancient times where you know we are social animals, period. And that's just the way it's always gonna be. So I think there will be some degree of, of less, you know, conferences for a while and all that. Uh, but I, I think the art of flying and connecting with other human beings will continue. It'll take some time. How we do it, I think, is probably more your question. Um, you know, there's there's supersonic, uh, hypersonic flights being scheduled. There's, there's all sorts of modes of transportation that will make it a little easier uh, for us to connect. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, in, in, the, in that time period, in five years, I think you'll see more frictionless, more uh, wonderful technology that makes things a lot easier. You've seen radical changes in the last few years, you know, for instance, at United. I mean, that app, you can do a lot of things with that app that you always had to call someone. So um, we'll do a lot of that. You know, the, the, the real big thing that will be interesting to see how it's accepted, um, we can fly aircraft today without pilots, right? Technology's here. Um, in fact, uh, in, in particular cases of really adverse weather, we actually suggest strongly to our pilots that they take their hand off uh, and let the machine, let the computer do that. Because computers don't make mistakes in that world and humans can. Um, and so we do that today. Uh, and so the question becomes to all of you, if indeed um, we begin to fly flights with no human pilot in charge, would you fly? And, and some people say, yeah, sure I would. And other people, ah, I don't know. You know Technical capability and social acceptance are two very different things. Um, and so, so I think you'll have, you'll, you'll begin to have some of those options. They're, they're existing today. Um, and so you'll see, uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, will we have smaller aircraft with less people? It's like the economics of this business and the many, many carriers around the world, it's going to take a, a, a generation or two to really fundamentally change that. So I, I don't, other than developments in technology, developments in cu customer satisfaction, hopefully with money. Um, I think we'll continue to move forward, uh, but uh, it's something as radical as having, like, for instance, no one, no one in the uh, aircraft to fly it. I just don't see that happening anytime soon from a social acceptance perspective. So uh, last question before we turn it back to Bill Galston for concluding remarks from Statement O'Gilvy. Thank you, and thank you, uh, Oscar, for being with us today for our most uh, instructive conversation. You are absolutely right in pointing out to 
white executives that there is no more powerful message to the aspiring minority communities uh, that opportunity will be provided, that uh, strategies are being created, and that the desire to see those things embraced is sincere. The reciprocal of uh, that observation is that there is no more effective pushback against uh, bad and ill-intended leadership uh, on the other side of these uh, interactions than would come from leaders of, uh, of color in corporate and political America. And I'm wondering, in the face of some obviously bad intended leadership right now, and by that I mean leadership that does not wish this nation well, ultimately, uh, in the face of that, who are the leaders most uh, uh, likely to take positions, unpopular today, I understand, of saying, yes, but, uh, to some of the uh, activities that are being done in the name of minority advancement, but that really aren't helping, aren't constructive, and are not beneficial to the future of the cause or the future of the country. Are you talking politically or business-wise or both? I'm talking business-wise principally, although uh, politicians certainly have a hand in it. Yeah. Um... I think the big banks and their leadership are going to be under a lot of pressure. Um, and I shouldn't say pressure because as I've spoken almost all of them in the last two weeks, um, I think there is a fundamental understanding that capital allocation, right? In business, that's the biggest thing you do. The, the people that, that lead the allocation process are us who, who lead our corporations. And the allocation of funds of people to this cause in however manner that you can are gonna be the ones that really lead us out of this. And money, unfortunately, runs everything. Um, at United, as you know, we have no money. So we're gonna to have to come up with much more creative ways and have about how we're gonna handle these issues. So I would put, I would put the banks uh, at the top of that list with regards to it. And I don't wanna name names just because I'll leave someone out and somebody will get angry, but. Uh, I think fundamentally that allocation of, of capital, um, you know, the, the margin gap between the haves and the have nots is, 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 you know, it just leaves the fact that you're always going to have one at the mercy of the other. And that's what has to be fixed. And dignity comes with jobs and roles and being able to do my own work. Uh, it's not handouts. Um, and so um, how we manage that, how we work through that, uh, you know, that's another very heady question that, and I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer appropriately, but from my perspective, uh, initially it's 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 that at the, those levels, and then the multitude of people, like all of us on this call, they can take your own personal community and take and take an action there in however way you see fit. I think that's and the ally thing as well. Uh, Oscar and Hap, I think I ran too many sentences together when I posed the question. I was really asking the, re the reciprocal, the opposite question, which is to say there's some terrible uh, leadership in the minority community right now that is not helping its cause, is not helping this cause, 
and I am observing that uh, leaders of color are the ones in positions in corporate America, let's say, are the ones who are going to have to say, if you really want to be constructive about this process, uh, black leadership or minority leadership, there's a better way to do it than what you are seeing play out right now and inspire the leadership that is constructive, that desires ultimately uh, a good outcome for all of us Americans, as opposed to some obvious leadership today that does not wish us well as a group, all of us. Well, I apologize. Uh, I guess I can answer both sides of that question. Um, it, it is, uh, it, there is a lot, by the way, going on um, with a, a more moderate approach. But again, as I said in my comments, um, there is a righteous anger and a deep suspicion that nothing's going to change. And as all of us have known in all our lives and people around us, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed, there's people that just want to fight. And you're never, ever going to stop them from doing that. Um, and they'll use everything in their power to be able to create more divide because it behooves their style. And that's what they think. Or they're tired. of. They can use all the platforms. And we see that across not just leaders of color, but you know, leaders in America uh, who do that. And yes, the fundamental thing about humans. And, and so what it takes is the proverbial village to work those things. So um, I know in our, uh, in our company, um, we have a, a, you know, a, a very nice percentage of people that are of color that, that we talk about this constantly uh, and ask them to interact with the employees that are feeling like maybe they're not being treated well. And it, there's, it's just, you have to keep at it, but that's the best I can do at this point. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a planet conversation, but I'm not, I don't think you, I have a you did well, Bill, it's your turn to conclude, but thank you so much, Oscar. Well, uh, let me add my thanks. This has been an outstanding session. Uh, and we want to thank, thank you for, you know, your candor. Uh, and for the wide-ranging uh, nature of this conversation, you said you could deal with just about all incoming, and I think you've demonstrated that in the past hour. Uh, and you've made a couple of points that really go to the heart of what No Labels is all about. Uh, first of all, your call for evidence-based policy. We couldn't agree more. And one of the things we're trying to do as an organization is to push that idea forward and identify ways in which there can be common ground on the evidentiary basis for the policies that we recommend across party lines. Secondly, uh, we're not just you know, disconnected individuals here. You know, we are part of a community where what some people do affects a lot, affects what other people do and how they fare. And where public policy, getting public policy right, matters for all of us. It's not just a political game. You know, it, it shapes everything that we care about. Uh, you know, and I have to say, it hurts my pride as an American that the Europeans have realistically assessed our performance and they have said, even if you want to come, we don't know, we don't want you, right? That is humiliating. 
but it's not just humiliating. It has consequences for your business because there's going to come a time when Americans want to travel to Europe again. Will we be allowed to do so? The answer to that question is still no, because we haven't upped our game, that we're all going to lose. You're going to lose. United's going to lose. Everybody on this call is going to lose, and all Americans are going to lose. So what you've, you know, what you've been telling us about United in the past hour has, I think, much broader implications for our movement and for the country, and we're in your debt. So thanks once again. No, thank you. It was great to see everybody. Appreciate it. Oscar Munoz says the airlines were the first industry to feel the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic because of the global nature of both the disease and the industry. However, he proudly notes the efforts of the United family to transport personal protective equipment and medical professionals around the world during this crisis. Shockingly, the industry is operating at roughly 10% of what it should be at this time of year. And Munoz does not expect a sustained turnaround for the industry until a vaccine is available. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. Mm-hmm.